Lord, you have given us another beautiful Lord's Day morning to greet one another, to meet together, to gather. Lord, we have found that in this era of Zoom and Skype and conference calling, that we find it impossible to gather without gathering. And so, Father, here we are, and here we love to be with your people. I, if I've heard it once, I've heard it 20 times this morning, how, how grateful people are and how excited they are to be together. Lord, I pray that as we ask that you would protect us during this season of coronavirus, that, Father, we would not allow our concern about it to keep us from ministering to one another and to minister to the lost. Lord, there is so much for us to pray for and seek your face over, but we have come now to hear your word. Speak to us, Lord. Speak to us by your word and give us ears to hear and hearts to understand and apply all that you have taught us today. Lord, these things we pray in the name of our Savior, Jesus. Amen and amen. We are in Colossians chapter 3, verses 1 through 4. In the year 1539, when it seemed all Europe was experiencing the spiritual enlightenment of the Protestant Reformation, the greatest astronomical discovery in history was brought about by a young medieval mathematician. For countless centuries leading up to this historic moment, astronomers from all around the world sought to understand the inner workings of our solar system. The prevailing view, of course, was that the Earth had a fixed position around which all the other nearby celestial bodies orbited. Virtually everyone, everyone believed that. But there were problems. In the years leading up to the great discovery, everyone in the field of astronomy understood that there were several logical and mathematical loose ends dangling from the accepted view. But despite the best efforts of our most brilliant astronomers, no one could resolve the problems. Every attempt at a resolution was crushed by what appeared to be an immovable obstacle, a roadblock. And so the result was no one could truly understand how the solar system works. But then one day, after 20 years of careful observation, calculation, and experimentation, a man came along who brought to the scientific community a six-volume treatise that smashed the immovable roadblock and resolved all of the vexing problems. And though this resolution required six books to explain and verify, the solution was both beautifully elegant and embarrassingly simple. You see, the reason no one could figure out how the solar system works is because the starting point for all of their cal calculations were universally and, and mistakenly fixed upon the wrong planetary body. All their calculations were oriented toward Earth rather than toward the Sun. By now, you've probably guessed that <clears throat> the six-volume treatise that 
forever changed the discipline of astronomy is that groundbreaking work entitled On the Revolutions. Not, not revolution in terms of insurrection, but revolution as in going round and round. And uh, some of you are probably saying, I've never heard of that before in my life. And truth be told, I never did either until I read up on this this week. And you've probably also already guessed that the author was none other than Nicholas Copernicus. It was he who famously discovered that our solar system was not geocentric, but rather heliocentric. In other words, the Earth, uh, the Earth is not the center of our solar system. Rather, the sun is. No big revelation to us, but to them, that was huge. That was really huge. And I thought about this story this week as I read the words of the Apostle Paul, who exhorts us in Colossians chapter 3, verse 2, to set your mind on things above and not on the things that are on the earth. In Paul's case, however, the goal was not to find the center of our solar system, but rather to reveal the center of the Christian life. Like us, the Colossians were in danger, always in danger, of being diverted from the preeminent Christ. Under the influence of the false teachers, Paul says in chapter 2, verse 16, some had begun experimenting with Jewish legalism and rules about eating and drinking and festivals and Sabbaths. And pursuing these things gave them apparently an, an artificial sense that they were drawing closer to God. There were others who were trifling with asceticism. Chapter 2, verse 18 indicates the prevailing philosophy of the day was, was that spirit is good and flesh is evil. So if flesh is evil, we should do everything we can to deprive our bodies of basic necessities and suppress every desire for physical pleasure. Many even engaged in self-harm. This too gave them a counterfeit impression of superior enlightenment. And still others found themselves dabbling in a kind of mysticism that involved the worship of angels and conjuring up visions that came from some source other than God. And not the first time that's ever happened. Just read the book of Jeremiah. In any case, and in each case, professing believers were attempting to heighten their experience of the divine. They wanted something more. They wanted fullness. They wanted rich flourishing in the Christian life. And this is the universal desire of every child of God, right? We want to thrive in our walk with God, don't we? The problem, however, was that like the astronomers in the days of Copernicus, their orientation was focused on things on earth rather than things in heaven. You may remember that Paul preferred, he referred to the, those man-made philosophies as, and, and these religious practices back in chapter 2, verse 20, as the elemental principles of the world. He called them shadows of the true substance. He said they perish as they are used. And he said that these things have the appearance of wisdom and, and phony religion. And they have no value 
against fleshly indulgence. They are of no use. These are, as Paul would say it, earthly things, earthly strategies for pursuing fullness and flourishing in the Christian life. The whole point of Paul's letter to the Colossians, however, is that if you have Christ, you have everything God offers and infinitely more than ever you could ask for or imagine. Do you want spiritual fullness? Listen to this. In Christ, all the fullness of deity dwells bodily. You want fullness? Then pursue Christ. Do you long for maximum spiritual flourishing? Paul's prescription for all of that is right here. And he reveals it to us in two prescriptions. Number one, keep seeking the person of Christ. And number two, keep setting your minds on Christ. Now, before we start feasting on this text together, let's take a moment to stand and read it. Colossians chapter 3, verses 1 through 4. Colossians 3, verses 1 through 4. Follow along with me now as I read. Paul writes, If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things that are above, not on the things that are on earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. And when Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. May the Lord add his blessing to the reading of his word, and you can be seated. Now, some of you are thinking, didn't we cover that last time? Uh, we... We touched on it briefly, and I knew back then that I was going to have to come back to this because I was applying what Paul had said up to that point, and yet there is so much more, so much more. Now, before, beloved, I, I, I want you to understand how important these four verses are. Paul is not dealing with tertiary matters here. He's actually driving us into the very marrow of the Christian life. He's revealing to us the core of Christianity. And the timing of these words, right here, is critical. The timing is critical because in the verses that follow, which we will get to next week, he's going to lay down two lists of sins that God wants us to either repent of or diligently resist and avoid. But if Paul does that without first orienting and anchoring our lives, our souls, to a vital relationship with the person of Christ, we will be tempted to think that the core of Christianity is putting off sin. That the core of Christianity might somehow simply be saying no to sin. And beloved, I'm here to tell you, that is not the core of Christianity. That is an important part of our sanctification, but it is not the core. When we're talking about Christian flourishing, Christian living, 
We're not talking about simply saying no to sin. We're talking about something else. Paul is teaching us about something else. And if we overemphasize saying no to sin, then it's going to lead us right back to legalism and asceticism. So, the first prescription for Christian flourishing, and we will only have time for the first, is, number one, keep seeking the person of Christ. Keep seeking the person of Christ. Now, chapter 3, verse 1, let me read it again. If then you have been raised with Christ, keep seeking things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. The word if here really carries the meaning since. Since you have been raised with Christ. And then note with me what Paul's doing here. He's appealing to the Colossians and and to your understanding of the great spiritual doctrine that we call union with Christ, by which, in the mind of God, we died when Christ died. I wish we had time to just ponder that statement. But let me just say this. Do you realize that your death is behind you? It's not ahead of you. Your death is behind you. You are alive forever now in Christ. You have eternal life. Now you'll never die. You'll never die. You may go to sleep and wake up in heaven, but you will never die. In the mind of God, you died when Christ died. And you were raised when Christ arose from the tomb. Now I say that Paul is appealing to their understanding of union with Christ because they understood what baptism was about. And I think by now, most people around here understand what baptism is about. Every time they witnessed a new believer getting baptized, they saw God's established, visible picture of union with Christ. And so Paul is saying, Since God now personally identifies you with Christ and Christ with you inextricably, there is no separating the two now. And since God identifies you with Christ and Christ with you, here's what he's saying. Since that is already the case, keep seeking the things above. Keep seeking the things above. The word seek here is an active imperative. And I don't want to get tied up in grammar here. I'm not that good with grammar anyway. But here's what it means. Imperative means it's a command, but active means it just keeps going on and on and on and on and on. A better translation would be keep seeking things that are above. Now, of course, this raises the question, what are those above things, literally, in the Greek, it is the, the above things. What are they? What are the things above that we should be thinking? Well, I don't think that he means we should keep seeking the stuff of heaven. I don't think he means that we should keep seeking angels, for example. I mean, he's already criticized that practice. He's not talking about, he's not inviting us to seek the pearly gates. He's not inviting us to to scope out the golden streets, or he's, not, he's certainly not calling us to seek loved ones who have gone before, who are in heaven. 
I have to say that there are, there are times in my ministry when I go overseas, and usually for two weeks, and by the end of the two weeks, you know what? I can't wait to get home. I just can't wait to get home. But you know what? My desire to come home is not mainly, or at all really, to see the front door of my house. Who cares? And, and my main objective, the, my great desire, is not to see the creek in the backyard. I'm not longing to see my computer in my office at home. What I desire to see more than anything else is the face of my beautiful wife. And what Paul's exhorting us to do is to seek and keep on seeking the beautiful, life-giving, sin-destroying, soul-satisfying person of Christ. However, there's a logical follow-up question that comes immediately to mind after this, namely, what does it mean to seek and keep seeking the person of Christ? And beloved, that's great question. That is a fantastic question. My soul has been refreshed on this this week, and I want to share this with you. The idea of seeking the person of Christ may seem a little foreign to you as maybe the whole idea of union with Christ, but it is a it is a theme of towering importance in the Bible. Believers in the narratives of Scripture are often and repeatedly told to seek Him as part of their everyday walk with the Lord. And frankly, the problem with illustrating this fact in a sermon is that in my study this past week of the things that are above, I found so many instances in the Word of God, really, I lost track of how many. It's, it's one of these things that once you see it, you can't not see it anymore. After filling three pages of references, I got lost in it. What does it mean to seek the Lord? Well, I've I got to tell you that establishing a pithy definition has proven to be an exercise in futility for me because it involves so many different things. For example, in, in Scripture, people seek the Lord to know Him, as Paul did, Ephesians 3, oh, sorry, Philippians 3. They seek the Lord to serve Him with a whole heart and devotion they seek his counsel, not leaning on their own understanding. They seek his forgiveness, his protection, his love, his salvation. Seeking him in the Bible is sometimes expressed in joyful worship or even by expressions of desperate need. And every time we seek him, it is from a posture of dependent faith, and love. Allow me to offer a few biblical examples. Matthew chapter 6. Jesus telling us that the Gentiles, Gentiles was kind of a, a catch-all phrase for anyone who was outside of Israel and therefore considered an unbeliever. 
And Jesus was saying that the Gentiles live with the constant anxiety of what shall we eat and what shall we drink and what shall we clothe ourselves with. And, and at times they were obsessed by it, as sometimes we are. But he reminds his disciples with these words, your heavenly Father knows that you need these things. But seek first, what? His kingdom and His righteousness. And all these things will be added to you. And what is seeking His kingdom and His righteousness but bringing your needs personally to God Himself? It's what it means to seek Him. We're not seeking heaven we're seeking the one who is in heaven. First Chronicles 16.11 is another good example. David calls everyone in, in the nation to come to Jerusalem and see the Ark of the Covenant set within the tabernacle. And he declares to the people with these words, he says, Seek the Lord and his strength. Seek his, listen, seek his presence continually. Seek his presence continually. In the Old Testament, the tabernacle was the dwelling place of God. That's why the Ark of the Covenant was there. It's the mercy seat where God, in, in his Shekinah glory, sat in rule over the nation of Israel. It, it would become the temple of the Lord when Solomon built it. But you know what? Even though the Old Testament used to say, listen, if you find yourself far, far away, away from the land of your people, and you've sinned against the Lord, then turn toward the city of God where the temple is and seek Him, and He will forgive you. But you know what? We don't have to worry about where the temple is. There is no temple. I've been there. It's not there. But you know what we have now? we got something better. We have Christ we have Christ. In 1 Chronicles 22:19, when David instructed his son Solomon about his first duty as king, he said, Now, Solomon, set your mind and heart to seek the Lord your God. You want to be a successful king? You want to judge righteously? You want to be a representative of God on earth? Seek the Lord. I take this to mean Seek his fellowship, seek his wisdom, seek his rule, his provision to do whatever it is that pleases the Lord. Seek him, seek him, seek him. In 2 Chronicles 7.14, God spoke to Solomon in a dream the night before he dedicated the temple, and he said, famously, see if you can fill in a blank here, God said, if my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and what? Seek my face and turn from their wicked ways. Then I will hear from heaven and forgive their sin and heal their land. Now, beloved, I understand that this was a promise to Israel. We know that because he hasn't promised us Americans a land. He hasn't promised Christians a land, unless we're talking about that land to come, which is heaven that Hebrews talks about. But you know what? If you know anything about the heart of God, if 
your family is in sin or your people, your nation is in sin, I know the heart of God to know well enough that if our people were to humble themselves and pray and seek his face and and turn from their wicked ways, he would hear. Can you imagine the impact that would have on our land? So that's what we pray for ourselves, first of all. And one last example, Psalm 27, verse 8. David declared in prayer to the Lord, You have said, O Lord, seek my face. And my heart says to you, Your face, O Lord, I do seek. Perhaps we could summarize by saying that seeking the Lord means that our lives are marked by dependent interaction and communion with Christ. Our lives are marked by dependent interaction and communion with Christ. You see, beloved, in God's eyes, seeking his Son continually is the core of Christianity. It should be the core of your Christian life. I was both convicted and refreshed and convicted again as I worked through these things this week. And I admit that we need to proceed with caution here because seeking Christ is not the same thing as coming to church. Are you listening to me? All eyes up here for a minute. Seeking the Lord is not synonymous, meaning it's not the same thing coming to church. Seeking the Lord is not the same thing as engaging in Bible study or participating in a group that is studying the Bible. And I'm not saying that's a bad thing. That's a good thing. It's a necessary thing. But it's not the same thing as seeking the Lord. And by that I mean you could do these things without seeking It is not necessarily the same thing as singing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. It's not the same thing as memorizing scripture or having family worship. It is possible to do most things that evangelicals do without really, truly, personally seeking the Lord. No wonder God said in the Old Testament and his apostles repeated in the New Testament These people honor me with their lips, and yet their what? Their heart is far from me. Their heart is far from me. Through the prophet Jeremiah, God promised, you will seek me and find me when you seek seek me, how? With all your heart with all of your heart. And uh, I just want to say at this point, I love my grandbabies. (laughs) Out of the mouths of babies, I just take that as praise to God. Well, perhaps it's too obvious to mention here, but one of the marks of an unbeliever is that they never seek Christ. They never seek God. 
In Jesus' day, the religious leaders were always seeking a sign from Christ, and he would give them none. In Romans 10.3, Paul says that they seek to establish their own righteousness instead of Christ. In Psalm 10, verse 4, we read that in the pride of his face, the wicked does not seek him. They don't see any need for him. And toward the end of the gospel narratives, all of them, we learn that what the religious leaders were really seeking was they were seeking to kill him. To all such people, the Lord says to Hosea, it is time to break up the fallow ground, for it is time to seek the Lord, that he may come and rain righteousness upon you. Consider this. On the day when you were born again, you remember that day? The day that you were born again, you sought the Lord with your whole heart. What the Apostle Paul is saying, don't stop doing that. Don't stop seeking him with a whole heart. Keep seeking the things above. Keep seeking the things above where Christ is. And by the way, the reason it's better to seek him than anything else on earth is because, as Paul tells us there at the end, Christ is seated at the right hand of God. In other words, Jesus holds the rank of ultimate supremacy, which is the main theme of the book of Colossians. The supremacy and therefore the sufficiency of Christ. He wouldn't be sufficient if he weren't first of all supreme over all things. And Paul establishes that in chapter 1. Think with me for a moment about your relationship with the Lord. Perhaps you're confident that you belong to him by grace, through faith. But maybe in your most honest moments, you have to admit that your spiritual life should be described as less than flourishing. Can I ask you a personal question? You'll have to answer out loud. Since you have been raised up with Christ, have you continued to seek the things that are above? Have you continued to seek the Lord? Is your objective union with Christ bearing fruit, the fruit of subjective communion with Christ? You may be sitting here thinking this morning, communion with Christ? Are you kidding? Honestly, I don't think I have any relationship with Christ. And how could I? There's, there's so much sin, there's so much guilt, so many past sins. He would never accept someone like me. Can I just remind you of who this one is whom we are seeking? There's one place in the Bible where Jesus actually speaks about his own heart. One place. Heart is all over the Bible. We're repeatedly warned to keep a rein on our hearts, to watch over our hearts with all diligence, all kinds of things about the heart. One passage where Jesus talks about his own heart. And you know what he says? Matthew eleven twenty eight. 28. Come to me, all who, are, all who labor 
and are burdened with a heavy load. And I will give you rest. Take your yoke upon me. And, and by that he means yoke up with me. For I am gentle and lowly at heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. The word for gentle there means not harsh. You come to this Christ, he will not be harsh with you. As Dane Ortland summarizes, this word group speaks of one who is not trigger-happy. He's not reactionary. He's not easily exasperated. He's never exasperated. He is the most understanding person in the universe. The posture most natural to him is not the pointed finger, but open arms to any who will come. And the word lowly is similar in meaning. It means humble. Sometimes it's it means thrust downward as someone who is not welcome. Thrust downward by circumstances of life or by sin. These are people who are socially unimpressive. And when, it, when Jesus is talking about himself as being lonely, what he's really saying is that he is accessible to you. Lowly people are not hard to reach. Hardly anybody wants to. Jesus is completely accessible. No one in human history has ever been more approachable than Jesus. There are no hoops to jump through to get access to him. The minimum bar for un, un, coming to him and being enfolded by the embrace of Jesus is simply this. Open yourself to him. Open yourself to him. It is all he needs. Indeed, it is the only thing that works. Who qualifies to approach Jesus? The text tells us only those who labor and are heavy laden. You don't need to unburden yourself before you come. You don't need to clean yourself up first before you come. Your very burden, listen carefully, your very burden is what qualifies you to come. And it is the only thing that qualifies you to come. So why won't you come? You have the burden. Why won't you come? To be sure, this is not who Jesus is for everyone indiscriminately. This is who he is for those who come to him, who take his yoke upon them, and to cry to him for help, which is just another way of saying, seek him for salvation. Seek him for what your soul needs, and only he can provide. Paul's words in Colossians 3 come to us as both, this is, this is beautiful, it comes to us both as invitation and command. You are invited to come, you are commanded to come. You are commanded to come to your joy, 
and having your burden taken away. In Pilgrim's Progress, when the story proceeds, when, when Christian or Pilgrim comes and he finally makes it to the cross and his burden falls off his back, you remember that scene? And it rolls down the hill and where does it land? In the tomb of Jesus. You know what he's saying? You have died with Christ. He invites us to seek him. But he warns that those who fail to seek him will be lost forever. Will you accept his invitation today? Will you accept his invitation right now? Oh, my friend, may this be the day that you begin seeking him with all of your heart. And if you already know him and you're convinced that you know him, are you seeking him? The invitation stands in the path to joy and fullness and satisfaction that can come from God alone will come to you as you seek his son. Seek him for what? Seek him for everything. Everything in dependent love. Beloved, the keys to Christian flourishing are but two. Fellowship with Christ and living by Christ, which is what we will talk about next time. Let's pray. Father, we're grateful to you for your word. We thank you that it comes with both a command and an invitation. And both are leading us to the same destination, to the same person, to the, own, the same satisfaction, the same joy, the same fullness. Oh, Father, may... May there be some today who repent of their stubbornness and their pride and cry out to you perhaps for the first time and find in you everything that God promised he would be for us in Jesus. These things we pray in the name of our Savior. Amen.